Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode three of Hypnosis Weekly. Hello, hypnosis lovers, and a warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Uh, I think I have a marvellous show lined up for you today, but I would think that, wouldn't I? In a short while, I will be sharing with you an interview with one of the most influential men in frontline hypnosis in recent years, James Tripp. I'll be asking him a bunch of questions about his approach and background and so on. Then I'll be taking a glance at some recent stories in the media where hypnosis is featured. I'm going to offer up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media, but also comment on some of the content of those stories. James and I will then be discussing one of those hypnosis debates that rages on, art versus science. So do you hang a stethoscope around your neck over your white overalls or do you wear flowery flowing dresses while pulling interpretive dance moves? I'm joking of course, there is some fabulous insight from James in today's debate. Discussion. Now, as usual, that discussion really presupposes that those of you listening have some knowledge of hypnosis theory. We'll round things off with the hypnosis factoid of the week before I bid you farewell for another week. This podcast is something that I want to encompass the feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate as well as doing its best to inform and educate along the way. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with the related links, are posted under each episode on that Hypnosis Weekly website at www.hypnosis-weekly.com. That's hypnosisweekly with a hyphen in the middle.com. You can add your thoughts, comments and make any suggestions there too. Please do consider sharing this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community, which would be greatly appreciated. Um, I have had a lot of emails in the first couple of weeks that this podcast has been running. Um, uh, next week, I'm going to tip out the mailbag, so to speak, and directly answer some of those questions. Um, we'll plough through a few uh, related to some of the things and some of the points made in uh, the, 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 the first two episodes prior to, to today. So first of all today, this week's interview. I've known James Tripp for a number of years. We've hung out and spoken together at various events. Um, I remember the first time we spoke in a pub after an event and whilst chatting, I became aware of someone who had many of the same sensitivities that I had. I mean, I thought I was the only speaker or trainer in the field of hypnosis with a modicum of fragility at that time. Our paths have crossed on numerous occasions since, and I always learn a great deal when James speaks. He is a major thinker. He is also incredibly erudite in areas where I tend to think my own knowledge tends to thin out. And perhaps that's why I enjoy hearing what he has to say so much. 
I think you'll really enjoy this interview with him. Please be aware, our connection broke a couple of times um, um, when we were when we were recording this, and so there's a couple of pauses and jumps here and there. I'm sure that you highly evolved listeners can transcend that beautifully. Here we go then, the interview with James Tripp. Now I'm delighted to have with me today, as I've already mentioned, the mighty, the, the, the titan that is James Tripp. Um, I've had the pleasure of meeting James on numerous occasions now, uh, not just here in Bournemouth where he's travelled and has spoken to the hypnotherapist peer support group that, that my school runs here, but also in London at conferences and some other events. And it has always, always been a real pleasure to, to come into contact with James. I've always learned a great deal and I've really enjoyed my interactions with him. And um, one of the things that, that's really obvious with James, very apparent with when you meet him and when you kind of engage with his work, is how much James gives to the, to the field, not just the field of hypnosis, but also other related fields. Um, and we're gonna, we're gonna learn a bit more about him, his work, and, uh, and, and as I've already mentioned, have, have a really good, insightful discussion today. So it's my absolute pleasure to welcome James Tripp. Hello, James. Hello, Adam, thank you for having me here. Now, appreciate it. Uh, well, it's a pleasure. Um, 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 we're going to kick things off today. Just, just kind of get to know a bit about you. Tell us first up. Tell me, you know, how did you get into this field? You know, what, what what's your background, and and how have you arrived at, at where you are now, as far as hypnosis is concerned? Mm. Now, this this is always an interesting question because there's a number of kind of start points. You know, I could say, well, you know, I was born in 1970, <laughs> but that's that's tracking back a little bit far. Um, but I, one of the things that's, that really underpins everything that I've learned, studied, everything that I've done for over 20 years now is, is a kind of, the kind of personal experience in my late teens of approaching adulthood and feeling ill-equipped for it in right. myself. So it's a very personal thing. Mm. Um, and I had a lot of issues that I would, I've often described as social anxiety. I had difficulty interacting with people and that kind of thing. And my solution to that was to drink a lot and recreationally medicate in other ways. Yeah. Uh, which didn't, which kind of was a short term fix that enabled me to be at the party. Uh, but then it kind of ended up spiraling my thinking out to crazier and crazier places. Yeah. Um, to the point where I kind of crashed in my mind when I was uh, 19 yeah. um, and I got kind of signed off work and put under the observation of the local psychiatric, which is really, you know, a bit overblown really, but I needed the space. Um, and I had a huge epiphany at that point that I was a real whiner. I was a real complainer. I was, you could say a typical teenager. I was just always saying, you know, I didn't sign up for this. Life's not fair. Da, 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 da. Yeah. You know, and I had this huge, huge realization that however much I'd bitched and whined and moaned and complained, the world was not going to reorganize itself to accommodate my bitching, whining, moaning and complaining. <laughs> it just, you know, it just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So it, it seemed to me that I either carried on in, in this downward spiral that I was in, or I took a different approach and thought, well, you know, where can, how can I change things around? How can I get some kind of edge in life? Um, and that kind of sent me off on a, a, on a huge exploratory journey, and initially through sort of looking at popular science books and some weird stuff on parapsychology, and then I got 
uh, onto a degree course as a mature student at the grand old age of 21. <laughs> um, it's uh, studying philosophy uh, at Heathrop College at the University of London. So I did three years of philosophy, which was quite transformative in many ways. I mean, yeah. at the time it was very frustrating as well, but uh, it really did do a lot for me that I didn't get to ben you know, appreciate until later on in life. Well, that led me on to looking at Eastern philosophy, and I got into martial arts and meditation and this kind of thing, which, and then I saw this, this chap, Darren Brown, on the telly, on the Jonathan Ross show, I think it was in 2001 or 2002. Yeah. Um, and it blew my mind because I'd been kind of searching for a long time as what was the thing that was going to fix my life. That was very much where my headset was at and had been for a long time. And I saw this guy doing these insane things and I thought, whatever that guy's got going on, if I had that, my life would be fine. <laughs> yeah. um, that was my simplistic notion at the yeah. time. So. I instantly jumped on what was the internet at the time, which was about three pages, I think, uh, the whole internet. Uh, but one of them happened to be on <laughs> Darren Brown. Yeah. Um, and it was a resource site saying, what does Darren Brown do? And it mentioned that he mixed magic, suggestion, misdirection, psychology and showmanship or whatever. And it gave some references. And I bought a book on NLP, not knowing what NLP was. Yeah. And I bought a couple of books on hypnosis and I bought some books on magic and mentalism, particularly the excellent book Magic and Showmanship by Henning Nelms, which was quite uh, a, a, an influential book for me on a personal development level, not just as a, as a magician and performer. Uh, but I got you know, very much into And the NLP, now the NLP book was absolutely mind-blowing for me. Yeah. Uh, I read half this book before I put it down and my head was so swimming with, with ideas. It was introducing NLP by uh, John Seymour and Joseph O'Connor. Yeah. Um, and what really blew my mind were just some of the underpinning ideas of NLP. Just like the idea that, that most of what I'd been taking to be my fixed personality was to them being framed as just skills, mm. just a, a learnt way of being. And there was this whole underlying concept that Pretty much, you could learn a different way of being. You could model a different way of being. You could you could become different at these kind of deeper levels than I'd ever thought before. Uh, and that was just just the, the possibility of that ripped my world apart um, and, and set me out on a kind of process or a project of just fundamentally reconstructing myself from from the ground up um, and using a lot of ideas from NLP. Which, which I got very deeply into, and I, I went on a practitioner training, I went on a master practitioner training, then I went on an NLP trainer training, became an NLP trainer. Now, hypnosis. Yeah. Hypnotherapy. When I trained in NLP initially, because I didn't get into it to sit down in a room with people and help them change their lives in any way, that wasn't the idea. No. I, I was interested in myself, purely selfish. Um, but I came out of the, the NLP practitioner, master practitioner, thinking I really love this stuff. I'm fascinated by this. And I would love to do something with this professionally. I would love to start you know, earning a living somehow in this area, making, creating some prosperity in my life through doing this. So I said to my trainers, what can I do? What could I do? And they said, well, you could become a coach, a life coach, they said I could become. And I, I hated the phrase. 
to life coaching. Yeah. Um, you know, it just seems so frankly arrogant to me. That, uh, that's, that's how it struck me at the time. I'm, I'm going to coach you on living your life better. Sounded, I, I had a real aversion to that. So I, I didn't label myself as a, as a coach, uh, as a life coach, but I did try and change the frame and, and advertise my services as a personal coach. Um, and it was pretty disastrous, really. I mean, I got clients initially through my the intranet message board at, uh, at the place I was working, but it was not it was not overly successful way of framing what I was doing. And one day somebody said to me, look, why don't you do hypnotherapy? Um, they said, you're in a society of NLP trained NLP practitioner, are you not? I said, yes. And they explained to me if I sent my certificates off, practitioner and master practitioner, to the General Hypnotherapy Standards Council, they would issue me with a general qualification in hypnotherapy practice because they were aware of the hypnosis content that was involved in those NLP trainings. So yeah, I did that, right. I, I got my, my certificate, and then I was a hypnotherapist, bingo. And then it hit me that I didn't really know that much about hypnosis, Yeah, you see. And I kind of, my, my internal congruence mechanisms sort of said, well, you better go bloody well find out then. Because <laughs> um, all I was doing was NLP stuff wrapped, wrapped up in a Betty Erickson induction. Yeah. Um, and... You know, and I, I had this sense there was a whole world of hypnosis, hypnotic phenomena, all of this kind of stuff that I knew nothing whatsoever about. So I got really busy um, learning about that. I'm happy to say more about where I learned about that and stuff, but you might want to jump in and change the course of the, the change the course of my ramble here. Yeah, well, well, well I mean, it, it, it's very logical. It's a very logical place for me to to, to dive in. In fact, because you mm. know, ha having. I'm, I'm, you know, obviously knowing knowing you and having encountered you, you know, you're, you're incredibly erudite about this subject matter. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, where you're at now and, and the journey you've had si even since then, um, where are you at as far as what hypnosis is? Um, um, you know, how do you define it? And perhaps, you know, you could tell me a little bit about how you how you arrived at that definition or, or you know, when people come up to you. Um, knowing a little bit about you and you know and, and ask you you know how do you explain what hypnosis is or how do you explain it at dinner parties and so on um you know explaining it one of one of the things i often say to people is that the term itself hypnosis i think is quite an archaic term yeah uh, and it carries a lot of baggage with it and it's, it's quite misrepresentative of what's really going on yeah. there a lot of the time um and i've often said to people if i if it I, at some point, I think it might be a good idea to retire that term, but I, I can't see that happening anytime <laughs> soon. Um, you know, and then what would you replace it with? So I think for me, hypnosis isn't a thing. It isn't any one thing. Um, for me, hypnosis is really about how we are continually shaping our experience of the world yeah. through, our, through our cognitive faculties. So we, we don't live in the world as it is. We live in the world as it occurs to us, so to speak. You know. Yeah. Um, so this this process of of shaping our cognitive faculties. Um, I was just literally about to put uh, a line up, which kind of hit me earlier after reading a book on Facebook, saying, you know, it, it's it's not the facts of life that bind us. It's the knots of our beliefs and understandings about things. You know. So this mm. is. This is, this is my real belief, is hypnosis is actually fundamentally not a special thing that happens over here in a room with someone called a hypnotist or up on a stage with someone called a hypnotist. Hypnosis, 
Okay, formal hypnosis is the hijacking of certain elements of communication in order to influence those cognitive processes that people are engaging in all the time mm. in the shaping of their experience. I like that. Um, you know, that's, and, and it comes in, in my mind, I often think back to this story that Bandler and Grinder, the, the NLP co-founders, used to rock up on stage and uh, John Grinder would say, well, there's no such thing as hypnosis. And Richard Bandler would kind of dive in behind and say, everything is hypnosis. Yeah. And on the one hand, I would go with that. And I often say that. I say, you know, we're swimming through a sea of hypnosis every day. But on another hand, on the other hand, I would say, well, actually, th there's this other thing which I often refer to as formal hypnosis, which is where we actually sit down in a room or get up on a stage and we say, we declare, hypnosis is happening. Yeah. And then we engage in some more formalized, I often use the term, this upsets some people, ritualized processes and practices. Yeah. Um, which are again, you know, what is a ritual but a form of communication, a way of engaging somebody's uh, thinking, their mind, their cognitive faculties, their meaning making processes. You know, a, a ritual in and of itself is operating on that level. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's this thing that we can sit down and when we see hypnotherapy happening. But ultimately, as a hypnotherapist, if I were practicing under that title, which I, I don't now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as a hypnotherapist, I see my job as having that person shift their, their deeper perceptions about, you know, to, to change the way the world has been occurring to them. Because when they see things differently, I mean, really see things differently, not intellectually, I mean, deep down at that kind of operational level. Yeah. The, the behaviors that they've been having problems with often just, they'll just readjust because they're kind of correlated. They're being, they're being created from the way that person has been habitually making sense of the world or a particular situation or whatever. And when you shift that, um, things tend to shift. So I often come in at that level. There's a whole skills level as well, which I know we've discussed Yeah. Um, again uh, before. I mean, uh, well, one of the points you made um, there is very interesting, you know, when, when we call something, you know, on one hand, um, I, I mean, it, I, I'm fascinated by that idea of Bandler and Grinder um, and being on stage, one saying there's no such thing as hypnosis and the other one saying everything's hypnosis because, you, you know, I suppose you could defend either, either stance of that. But mm. this, this notion that you mentioned there, you know, when, when something is then called hypnosis or when it's framed as it, um, um, it's it, it is a di it becomes a different creature than the kind of everyday ordinary psychological processes. Do, mm. Would you say? Yes, I, I agree. And I just do you know the reason I think it does is 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 this weird kind of strange loop that happens in that it puts another layer of communication on top of the communication that's already happening. Mm. Um, you know, the, my my definition of hypnosis and it's imperfect. But yeah. I've been using it for a long time. Um, is hypnosis, i.e. formal hypnosis, is the use of language and communication to direct attention, uh, lead cognition and seed ideas for the purpose of leading someone into an altered experience of reality. Mm. So that, that's my definition. And, and yeah. you know, so, so for me, there's, there's an important part about communication. Language and communication are right, right there. Yeah. And then we're using those, those are our tools to engage this person's, I mean, let's just put it simply, to engage their brain, right? Yeah. Now, we're doing this every day in many ways in, within the context of a conversation. Yeah. But, but the meaning that sits around, uh, the, the, the frame that sits around an average conversation is this is a conversation, you know, 
Um, but once you somehow label it or name it as hypnosis, you can have the same damn conversation and other things start to happen because yeah. the, the, the meanings have been shifted already on another level. Another level of communication has been added, i.e. the label, this is hypnosis. Um, and I've seen this. There's a little piece that I do, a little stunt that shows the use of embedded suggestions and things. I do on the back of a business card. And I've done it in various presentations and things where I psychologically force a choice. And it probably works about 80% of the time, yeah. I would say. And I'll do that, and then I explain how I did it, and I point out several features of my languaging, which are all NLP influenced around this, like embedded commands and uh, you know, analog marking and, and this kind of thing, use of nonverbal communication. And then I explain that's, that's, that, that's what conversational hypnosis is. And then after that point, people assume I'm doing that all the time, but I've just <laughs> used it to set a frame. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, and then how my conversation, how my, my regular words are perceived. You know, I had somebody contact me recently who knows me as a hypnotist. Yeah. And they, they paid for an hour of my time, a consultation, which I had done in a very non-hypnotic way, so far as I was concerned. I didn't set any frames. We just had a discussion about some things, life, the universe, and everything, and some things, that, how they related to their business. Um, th this was a while ago we had the conversation. They came back to me many, many, many months later, waxing on about how powerful my, my hypnosis was and how their life had changed as a result of this conversation and all of this kind of stuff, which yeah. is like, great. We, yeah. had a, we had a chat. <laughs> That's what we did. Yeah. But in this person's mind, because I am a hypnotist, they had perceived it as some sort of conversational hypnosis session. And, and whether that, you know, to what degree they would have had the same impact if they'd have just framed it as a conversation, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I tell um, all, my, all, 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 all my students on their first day in class, I tell them about a time when a lady phoned up on behalf of her husband who was sat in the background and she was in the kitchen on the telephone asking me some questions about um, how, how she would organise the hypnotherapy for her husband and so on. Mm. And midway through the conversation, she, I, I could hear her attempting to muffle the telephone Phone and shouting out, Frank, he's doing it on me now. Yeah. Um, um, and, 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 you know, you would never in a million years have done, have, have said such a thing or thought such a thing had, had it, had I been, had I not been a hypnotherapist. Mm. Um, um, now, you see, obviously you've given us some great, some great consideration and, you know, you, you've done, done your due diligence as far as I can tell. Mm. Um, um, you know, how has that been influenced? Um, um, and tell us a little bit, you know, who are your major influences, James? What are the kind of books and authors that have taught you most? And, and what, what teachers have been most influential upon you, your career? And perhaps you could explain a little bit about why. Okay. Um, the first thing I have to, I have to say is, is NLP again. I mean, NLP, I have to credit with really radically transforming my life. Yeah. Um, and I have enormous reservations about so much of NLP mm -hmm. as well. So, I, you know, I want to, on the one hand, acknowledge it deeply and also say I can't fully endorse it at the same time. Sure. Um, now, coming out of NLP, and obviously, so every influence on NLP is a kind of indirect influence on me. So there's Ericsson, yeah, get Ericsson that. and that kind of stuff going on, although yeah. I'm not a big Ericsson head. Um, coming forward from there, when I first made the decision to explore hypnosis, um, 
one of the first things that really had a big impact on me was was a guy called David Kaloff uh, and his audio set called Hypnotic Techniques, which I don't know if you've ever listened to that. Have you? Adam? Yeah, I, I, the only reason I listened to it was because you told me to listen to it on one of your audios. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, a... yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you you cited him as an influence, um, yeah. and so I went and explored. I went and explored that purely. You know, you you cited it to me. Um, um, in one of your audios, and that's the reason. Yeah, I mean, to me, that was that was the perfect bridge for me because at the time I knew how to spin an Ericksonian language pattern, and I knew how to do a, a, a Betty Erickson induction. But you know, I, I didn't know anything about hypnotic phenomena. Now there was a guy who trained with Erickson himself, but had been, I believe, as he puts it, a trance jockey beforehand. He was a right. Uh, yeah. He'd been trained in direct hypnosis before working with Erickson. So, and very early on in those audios, he very boldly and very casually uh, elicits a hypnotic phenomenon where he has a piece of paper sticking everybody's hands. Yeah. Um, which, which I, I, now, that was for me, I was going, that is what I want to be able to do, not just have people close their eyes and, you know, riff around these language patterns. So I, I took, I started doing that piece. I kind of almost learned it word for word and then I adapted it to myself. Um, and then kind of another big influence is Anthony and Freddie Jackwin. Yeah. Because at the time I'd been doing this, I'd been going around doing this in my hypnotherapy sessions, this thing, which I always did with a business card, a card stick, and I, I was doing it out in bars and stuff. And I saw the, uh, Anthony doing some street hypnosis on YouTube and doing all sorts of other stuff. So I, I sought him out. This is pre-head hacking, before, before the head hacking days when he was still yeah. doing... Uh, training with Freddie. I know. I think he still does do some training yeah, with Freddie. Yeah. But um, and they had a thing going on in Hastings. I remember ringing up Anthony saying, "Look, Anthony, I, I can do this thing. I can stick a card in someone's hand, but I can't do anything else." And he laughed at me and said, "Well, if you're going to stick a card in someone's hand, you can stick any part of them to anything." And I was just, yeah. uh, you know, I've been so stuck in this idea that this this thing was some self-contained thing. Um, so he invited me to go and spend a weekend with him and Freddie. They were doing a thing down in Hastings. There were only about five people on it. And I, I learned their stuff and their approach. And I immediately started hanging out with some street hypnotists in London. But you know what I never liked? There was a huge element to that whole, that whole sleep deeper, 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 deeper thing. I just didn't like it. Yeah. Right? I had an aversion to it. And the thing is, I've been doing this thing, this David Callow thing, with no trance induction. You know, and I was thinking to myself, you know, why, why do we do this trance induction thing? Yeah. And I remember actually I asked John Chase this question on a forum. Now, John and I, we have many differences of opinion. We, don't, we, we seem to find it challenging to get on with each other. Um, but but I, I have to credit John. This is, there's an irony in this because when I was doing the hypnosis without trance stuff, John was jumping on me all the time telling me how wrong I was about my view of hypnosis. Yeah. But ironically... Oops, there's a boom Sorry, that's that, that's me of all people. Yeah, yeah, I can uh, I can imagine you there dancing in your Bermudas in this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, there's a, such an irony to this because I was having this thing of going, I don't understand what the trance induction is for when I'm doing this stuff without the trance. Why do people do it? And I, I wrote to John Chase on a, on a phone. I said, John, why do stage hypnotists do all that induction thing when they've already done? the suggestibility tests, I'm doing my air quotes around that, Yeah. Um, don't tell Mark Tyrell, um, <laughs> you know, uh, wh why do it, what's the point, you know, is it necessary, and he said, well, the secret is that it's not necessary, 
but people like it. And I thought, right, that was the final thing that got me to go, yeah, um, it isn't necessary. Oh, another influence, I have to say, this is a big influence on me not buying the trance model, yeah. which initially I did, by the way, coming from an NLP Ericksonian background. Yeah, yeah, that's I was going to say. I mean, I, I find that interesting that that, um, that that is quite central to, to a lot of the terminology in particular with regards to NLP's approach to hypnosis and the irony being that, you know, being so influenced as your early days were that you then, you know, uh, for, for me, you know, I thought it was really groundbreaking that, that the stuff that you presented to the world and to the to the hypnosis community in the field with your hypnosis without trance. Mm. Well, the, the thing that that comes from is just, do you know, I can trace that back to the philosophy degree. Mm. Because with philosophy, that's really just a degree about good quality thinking. You know, forget the content of the program. It's just examining premises and the conclusions that come from them. And because I did spent three years conditioning myself into that way of thinking, the stuff I was being taught just didn't hang together. Yeah. It just didn't make sense. There were too many counterexamples that, that, that demonstrated to me what I often call the mythology of it. It just wasn't so. It just couldn't be so. Mm. It didn't hang together. And I, I couldn't ignore these things. They were kind of screaming at me and glaring at me from all kinds of angles. Um, and I was because I was trying to learn all about hypnosis and the stuff that I was being taught just didn't hang together with my experiences. So I, I discovered some other people and other influences, the 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 amazing Kreskin. Yes. Um, you know, uh, because Kreskin had that whole thing. There's no such thing as hypnosis. It's just suggestion. Yeah. And many people I remember saying, oh, that's just because Kreskin is Canadian and in Canada, you're not allowed to perform hypnosis. So. He's just saying that, but I don't <laughs> think he was just saying that. I think he genuinely probably believed that. Yeah. You know, that was his frame. That was his understanding. So Kreskin, that comment from John Chase, the fact that I just didn't like in a street hypnosis context doing trance inductions on people. I prefer to sit at a table and subtly stick their hand to something or go for a casual name amnesia. Yeah. Um, that, that just fitted my <laughs> casual. style. Yeah. yeah I, I used to love to do that. I used to love to just drop in halfway through a sentence and go bang, and go in with a name amnesia with no no real framing. I mean, they kind of know I did hypnosis and stuff, so there was some framing around it. Yeah. Um, but just informally, literally jump in halfway through a sentence and just say, you know, it's like um, bang, and your name is gone now. Your name's gone. What was your name? Try and say what 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 was it? Yeah. And I just do that halfway through a, a conversation at a coffee shop. Yeah. Just to see what my hit rate was with the with with the amnesia, you know. Um, which is a fair hit rate just for doing that. I, yeah. I, I'd, I'd probably guess, I don't know, I'm, I'm guessing, I never measured it, but I guess I'd, I'd get at least a kind of 50% hit. Yeah, because I'm I mean, just, you know, that, 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 that is, uh, you know, I think that is um, um, challenging, challenging phenomena um, for people to elicit. Um, I, I really do. Mm. I've, I, that's one I really kind of rode on for a long time. I tried some different methods, and, and another big influence for me was training in clean language right, as yes. well. Um, and the, the element of clean language is really paying attention to where people's attention is. Yeah. Uh, aside from the questions and all of that, and learning to be a facilitator, you really start to pay attention to where people are kind of spatially organizing their stuff. Yeah. Because um, there's an influence from NLP. So I started to do this thing. I tried this amnesia thing that was based on an anchoring technique. 
um, to do a name amnesia on somebody where I'd anchor confusion and then try and fire it off. And it was a bit hit, actually, it wasn't that great, this method. It wasn't getting great results, but it would work sometimes. And then one day, this guy had a blank for a bit, and he said, and then he said his name. His name was Ian. He said, Ian. Um, and then and he laughed. He said, you know, it could have completely gone for a second there, but then it just kind of came back in at me. And yeah. his hand gestured through space from, from outside of him back into his head. And just some, some ideas from NLP. And I said, so when it came back into you there and I traced the path in the hand, I said, if it were to come right back out, and I kind of took it out and pantomimed the whole thing disappearing. Yeah. And I said, and what happens when it's gone now? And you look at me, try and say, what was, what was your name? <laughs> um, and, and he was looking at me, and, and it was an absolute perfect amnesia piece. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, that's great. So I started just playing around with this idea of saying to people, you know, you know your name, don't you? Um, and really, if I'd already done some hypnosis stuff with some, some more, let's say, suggestible people, often I'd go, you know your name, don't you? And they just look at me blankly, and I'd get it right then and there. Um, <laughs> you know, with a very simple kind of just suggestion of confusion. Um, yeah. and, but mostly people would go, well, yes. And I'd say, so when you know your name, whereabouts is that name? Is it in your mind? Is it in your body? And they'd invariably say, in my, in my, oh, it's in my head. And I'd say, whereabouts? And at that point, they would engage. They would point to it, which would mean they're kind of actually building some kind of internal engagement with a representation. I, you know, I don't know. I can't pretend to know what's going on in people's heads. Yeah. But I found by doing that and having people really kind of engage with it, and then when I, when I take it out, then I would lean across and pantomime taking it out. And when their eyes would watch it go, you see, I'd know I was on a winner then, that they're, they're kind of fully dropped into this created experience, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, and for me, that's what hypnosis is. I see myself as working with people to create experiences with them much of the time if I'm doing that sort of hypnosis. I'm yeah. not controlling their mind. There is no mind control from me. I don't have those powers. But, but together, we can create an experience when they engage their minds in particular ways, you know. Yeah. So, and, and, I mean, through that and, and through the, the, the phenomena stuff which which I, I think was incredibly popular you know everybody I was talking to at the time when you were releasing that material for example um, mm. you, you know everybody everybody was 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 learning it and was discussing it on forums and so on um, I'm, I'm, and, and so I'm guessing that you've you've borne witness to quite a lot of hypnotic phenomena um, I'm, I'm, is there is there something that impresses you more than, or something that has impressed you more than others? You know, what what are some of the more impressive applications of hypnosis that you've that you've witnessed, that you've I mean, been like, involved with? You know, as in kind of actual practical applications, rather than just oh, that's interesting. You know, the, um, that that is an interesting thing because I would often do little bits of hypnotic um, sort of phenomena work with clients, but really I didn't do it in a very imaginative way. I'm going to put my hands up, Adam, and admit that I'm not actually that much of an imaginative person when it comes to these sorts of things. Sure. Um, now, you had a conversation with, with Jürgen Rasmussen recently. Yeah. And he, he's the guy to ask about creatively applying the ideas that I was teaching through Hypnosis Without Trance, because he, he's just such an outside-the-box thinker. Um, and he's got some fantastic tales of how he's utilized bits and pieces. Uh, one that he was telling me recently was he had a, a client who had an eating disorder. And she said to him, you know, I cannot imagine letting go yeah. of this because it's so much a core part of who I am. And Jurgen just said, well, is there anything else that, 
that's an e even more of a core part of who you are than, than this? And she said, well, no, not that I can think of. And he said, well, what about your name? And she said, well, yes, my name is. And he said, so could you imagine letting go of your name? And she said, no. And he's gone, gone, boom, and done that. That name amnesia piece from Hypnosis Without Trance completely nailed it. Yeah. And she's there going, and, you know, so, so for me, I love that. I love hearing that stuff back from Jürgen about yeah. what an incredible creative yeah. application that is. Yeah. Um, sometimes I'll use, I went through a phase of using uh, a card stick or a hand stick as a metaphor for stuckness mm. in people's lives. So, you know, I would, I would have somebody experience this stuckness, but then afterwards educate them that it was of their own creating. Yeah. That, that it didn't exist in the world, that the hand was not really stuck. Mm. Um, you know, and, and then utilize that as a metaphor to show them that the area that they're perceiving themselves as stuck in their life, it's, it's exactly the same thing. It's their perception that's creating the stuckness. There is nothing in the world keeping them stuck. Yeah. But their own thinking. So I would, and then I would coach them to be able to bust themselves out of the hypnotic loop that I was setting up with them. Yeah. To start to introduce, this is where you have, you see, you have choice, um, which is a kind of a weird thing. I'm a bit weird like that as a, as a, as a hypnotherapist, not that I operate under that title anymore, but, but in that I was always, I always saw myself a lot of the time as wanting to wake people up more than put them to sleep, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, you know, and start to see the gaps between stimulus and response, if you like, you know, I'm putting yeah. it prosaically, but, but places where they could start, up, start to upgrade and, you know, identify where they had choice, where before they weren't seeing it, and these, these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, which I know isn't, which I prefer that frame. I'm really not keen on the whole, well, you come in and see me unconscious with all these patterns dominating your life, and I want you to remain unconscious. No, I want you to be even more unconscious. And I want you to you leave here reprogrammed by me with, I just, you know, that, that, yeah. that yeah, drives that, that, me nuts. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, it, it, it's, a notion, it's a notion that I've um, protested against um, mm. I'm, I'm on, you know, on numerous occasions as well. Um, um, J James, I think anybody listening to this, and anybody that that is familiar with your work or has explored your work, you know, I mean, I mean, it's it, it's some journey, and and you know, um, um, it's 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 been over a, a number of years, and um, um, would there be would there be something that you'd do differently? I mean, if you if you were going back, if you knew what you know now. Um, when you start, I mean, this sounds like a hypnosis language pattern. Um, yeah. um, when you started out um, exploring hypnosis, is there something you'd do differently? Is there some advice that you'd give that younger you, um, um, or even something that that might well extend and be useful to you know hypnotherapists uh, of today, or even people starting out today? Yes, um, the the piece of advice that I would give would be. The thing that I think that was has been very toxic for me, I'm using that term harshly, I know, but I think it really held me back for a long time, was having got into NLP, and there's so much I love about NLP and so much it, it did for me, but this kind of mechanistic reprogramming metaphor. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's taken me a long time to become free from it. And the idea 
the swaggering, the swaggering kind of idea that if you're any damn good, you should be able to change any aspect of anyone's life in about 15 minutes. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, that creates an incredible amount of pressure particularly for new practitioners who are going out there and they start to oversell what they're doing. I will transform your life in 15 minutes and bring along a hundred problems. We'll knock them all, you know, and it's this myth making. Yeah. It's the creation of myths around, and this is part of it around key figures. I mean, like, you know, I'm sure Ericsson's a great guy and all of that, but we don't know Ericsson. We, we know the Ericsson myth. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Even people that met Ericsson, they, they're remembering through their, own reconstructed memories and there's a there's a myth-making process in memory itself you know within memory Absolutely itself. There is, yeah. you know and so people start to hold themselves to these huge high standards where they're supposed to be magicians that wave magic wands they're supposed to be mind control Svengalis they're supposed to be able to reprogram people outside of consciousness and all of this and and I really sincerely believe I've said this before many years ago I played in a, in a band that we had a drum machine you see, unlike all the other bands who had real drummers, we had a drum machine. <laughs> so we used to hear this joke all the time, what's the difference between a drummer and a drum machine? And the punchline is, you only have to punch the information into a drum machine once. <laughs> yeah. Right, and, and, it's, and it's a great joke, but I've often said, whoever came up with that joke understood something about human beings that, that, that most NLPers seem to miss, that we are not bloody machines you know you can't just punch the information in once I'm gonna install this I'm gonna do that I'm gonna that's it's crap I, I'm try, holding myself back from using a stronger word here yeah you know we are organic developmental creatures yeah. we learn and we change and we grow some of the power hypnotists I've had this argument with I've said listen could you have taken me at the age of four and put me into a trance and have me come out the other end the man I am at 40 Mm. Right, you, you couldn't do it. You just could not do it. Now, some things in some things. I'm not saying everything is a developmental issue. Sometimes there's simple things like you might want to help somebody um, have a smoking cessation session in this week. It's very rare for me to do this kind of thing because I don't do that kind of work anymore. But somebody begged and pleaded with me. But um, you know, to, to do this sort of simpler things. But a lot of the time, there are things things are bigger. There needs to be real shifts in understanding at, at deeper levels so as to change how people are showing up and they may need to develop skills along with that to support them those new shifts in understanding so they can be in the world in a different way and those things don't necessarily happen because you went you know and you or you squashed this or you you know they, they, they don't happen so i love to use ideas from hypnosis and nlp to help people in their own transformative journeys, their own learning and change. I mean, I think learning is at the seat of this. We become different because we learn to be different. We yeah. change our understanding of things. Uh, and, and, and I do not believe that you can bypass people's, people's inherent learning and change mechanisms. Mm. You know, the best you can do is utilize them optimally, mm. but you cannot magically bypass them. And I know this is this piss. Oh, sorry, I'm trying to watch my language here because that's this, all right. You can uh, be as you can be as much of a potty mouth as you like. Oh, okay. I, I know this. I know this upsets some people. I ran a training a while ago, and somebody ran out. It was a hypno hypnosis training. They ran out crying, tears streaming down their face, saying, "You don't even believe in hypnosis." You know, and that not that's not true. I just don't believe in this idea that hypnosis is this magical force that can 
do virtually anything. I remember reading on a forum somebody saying, if Paul McKenna's such a good hypnotist, how come he's going bald? You know, <laughs> like, because cause that ain't what it's about, you know? It's not yeah. about magic that enables you to manipulate the laws of the universe or anything like that. The, the, we, we, are, we are bounded by certain facts of reality. And when we honor those rather than, rather than fantasizing about being able to, to break them, when we, and as my coach, Steve Chandler, um, who is a, a phenomenal transformative presence in my own life, as he says, reality is your friend. Reality yeah. is your friend, okay? Where people, fall, where people fall down is by trying to fight reality, by trying to deny it, by trying to push it away. But when you recognize that reality is your friend and you learn to work with it, you know, you, you can truly, which echoes, I know you have a, a fondness for stoicism. There's a kind of idea within stoicism that we work with reality and not be struggling against it and stuff. Absolutely. You know, and I yeah. think that's, I think, so my, my, my thing that I wish I'd learned earlier, earlier on is to work with reality, to be, to be more honest about reality, to, to look more deeply into reality and to have stayed away from some of the more fantastical suggestions that we can utterly transform anybody in any way with a simple 12-minute process or, or, or whatever, I, I yeah. wish. Yeah. Be because for a long time, when I was thinking to myself, my, my critical thinking skills were saying, this just doesn't add up. And it doesn't fit the evidence that I'm seeing as I'm following up with people. And every time I tried to have a discussion with this publicly, I'd be just shot down from every single angle yeah. with people telling me, oh, well, maybe you can't do that, but I can do that with mine. You're clearly not good enough as a hypnotist. Yeah. You know, and, I, and it's just, I find that, and I, I'm, the thing that saddens me the most about that is the number of people I've ended up working with over the last four years who have come out of NLP trainings or hypnosis trainings filled utterly riddled with neurosis created by the by them trying to conform with a fantasy that just isn't real yeah and thinking there's something wrong with them somehow for not being able to install any change in behavior instantly yeah, or uh, manage their own states yeah quite I, I, you know i mean th th this is really refreshing for me to hear myth is like you can instantly override thousands of years of evolution and just yeah one of the things that that, that i say a great deal um, um with, with with a lot of people you know this this idea that um um that, that, that things can be so briefly changed you know I, I'm, and what about you know like the stuff you see on television and these snippets which makes for good tv but what about yeah. lengthy follow-up when you see these people on these kind of weight reduction programs that have been um, um uh, you know, gone through this really fast, rapid process, and and everybody expects that you know because uh, a story's made it into the paper, this person's lost four stone in uh, uh, in a short period of time. That everybody else should be able to do that, and we all ought to be doing that. When the reality is is not the same, mm -hmm. um, and, and likewise, you know, people that profess to have ninety five percent success rates with smokers, when when actually evidence would suggest that you know at best it's 50 percent you know and, mm. and, and, and that's that's potentially even pushing it and you know what about those people that are the the five percent um now um um james where, where can people go and learn more about your work and your approach to hypnosis um 
Regarding my approach to hypnosis, the best place that people can go is is they can go check out hypnosiswithouttrance.com. Yeah, and we'll we'll have a um, we'll have a link to that for anybody. Um, uh, Hypnosis without trance. There will be a link to that site um, underneath this this podcast episode as well. Yeah. Um, um, now, um, you and I, you and I are going to be talking again in a short while. Um, um, thanks very much for this, and um, um, you know, stay tuned, everybody. Uh, James and I are going to discuss uh, art versus science in hypnosis in just a short while. There will be more from James shortly. For now, though, let's have a look at this week's hypnosis in the news. I wanted to offer up a couple of articles this week that championed hypnosis and that were real success stories. And so where better to start than a real success story whereby the hypnotherapist involved is Felix Economakis. Um, um, a woman who lived on just chips for 15 years and was terrified of all other food is hypnotized into eating her first meal. Uh, there are photos of her eating salads and foods which are not just yellow. There's green and red and so on in there and there's even footage of her eating her first meal after 15 years of just chips. Uh, there's also some fabulous information um, on that article about selective eating disorder and it's really good to read stuff like that and see that kind of stuff making it uh, uh, into the news. Um, I'll certainly have to see if we can get Felix on the show at some point in the future. The next article entitled Ryan Adams Road to Recovery, that's Ryan Adams not Brian Adams, um, who sought help from a hypnotherapist for dealing with his Meniere's disease. Uh, for those that are unaware, it's similar to, though considered more severe form of an inner ear disorder resembling tinnitus. Um, and, and for me, you see, it's great to see what I would consider to be a fairly complex disorder being successfully treated this way and being championed by a profiled musician. Uh, very often, hypnosis tends to get lumped in um, um, with, 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 with a lot of very similar types of disorders. So I think it's lovely that hypnosis um, um, is shown to be really effective with, uh, with such a disorder. Um, finally, there was recently a great article featured on the NHS Choices website, something I've actually criticised quite heavily in the past, and perhaps I'll um, resurrect that discussion at a future episode. Um, um, one of the re real reasons that I liked this, this particular article and um, the discussion that was entitled Hypnosis Helped Me Sleep was because it was big on self-hypnosis training as a central component of the treatment plan. It showed that self-hypnosis advances self-efficacy. Um, and this is something, a theme and a subject that is central to my own work. The client case study really felt capable of affecting her own therapy favourably. And um, you know, I think that's vital and I wish that message would be broadcast more uh, uh, within the media, you know, rather than just portrayals of, of, of this kind of strictly hetero-hypnotic relationship that occurs. 
Um, so I thought after a couple of minor whinges in former weeks with the hypnosis in the news snippets, I thought I'd include uh, a load of stuff that I was happy with this week. Um, and links to all of those stories are listed under this week's podcast entry over at www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Next up then, this week's discussion between myself and James. Um, this week we discuss art versus science. You know, is hypnosis the domain of the artist? Is it something that is expressed and should be expressed? Or is hypnosis something that requires a more standardised, evidence-based, scientific approach? And there are people that staunchly defend either corner. Um, James and I discussed this, and as I said earlier as well, just a reminder, our connection led us down a couple of times, so there may be a couple of jumps and pauses here and there within the recording. Do continue to transcend beautifully, you highly evolved listeners, but here is that discussion. So I'm back here with uh, James Tripp following our interview earlier on. Um, um, a couple of years ago, uh, I gave a series of lectures and presentations about evidence-based practice uh, in the field of hypnosis as well as within the field of psychology and um, uh, it, it, uh, I was I was confronted a great deal by people suggesting that you know I was some kind of science fascist or science Nazi um, and, 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 and as a result I'm, I'm also often confronted with with this discussion that uh, d does seem to get debated um, 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 in places, and it's it's that of of hypnosis as an art or hypnosis as as science, um, and 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 for me, my main influence has tended to be as far back as nineteen sixty five, simply because Ernest Hilgard provided some evidence that that stands up to today's rigor, and suggests and suggested that hypnosis tended to depend more on the efforts of the subject than artistry of hypnotist. Now, the, the, the academics are often then sort of uh, uh, are often labelled as not being very good artists. And one of the one of the logical fallacies that I have then used a great deal to use humour to utterly distract people from this is that I've said, you know, uh, I, I, yeah, well, we need to put, uh, we need to get Kate Bush's song Babushka on in the background, where where, where long flowing dresses and start getting into interpretive dance because um, um, artists of hypnosis want to be able to express themselves and so on, um, um, and it's a cheap shot, um, uh, uh, and one which I've one which I've used um, um, to to get cheap cheap laughs in the past, um, so. Essentially, that's what we're gonna what we're gonna discuss today. You know, um, um, James. First of all, before I before I sort of go on anymore, wh wh where do you stand with this? Okay. Um, the first thing that I'm gonna say about this, I do genuinely believe that art versus science is a false dichotomy. Yeah. Um, so I, I wanna wanna put that out there straight off the bat. Um, the place that I stand on this is I, I think. Going back to your, your point there, who was it you were saying the efforts of the subject? Yeah, yeah, so the... yeah, hypnosis depends more on the efforts of the subject than the artistry of hip, hypnotist. Um, Hilgard's 1965 work on, on susceptibility. Right, so I, I agree 100% with that, except where I don't. Yeah. Um, now, I don't think that you can disentangle 
the efforts of the subject versus the artistry of the hypnotist. Yeah. I don't believe that you can disentangle the two. Now, you, you can t to a certain extent in that you could just record a standard induction on a, on a tape player and you could leave it to chance how that subject shows up yep. for that. Right? Yep. Now, I'm aware of this. I'm aware as a practitioner of, 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 of change, although mostly what I do now is, is what I would call coaching rather than hypnotherapy. Uh, um, I'm aware that what the client brings is like the real major factor. Yeah. You know, how that, what I often say, how they show up, what they bring to the interaction is going to be a massive defining element of what they take from the interaction. Now, being aware of that, I see myself as in the role of coaching their efforts. And I think there is a massive amount of artistry involved in coaching efforts, just the same as you can take a teacher in a school or a teacher of martial arts. Some people are exquisitely good at coaching the efforts and the engagement of their students, and yeah. other people frankly suck at it. Now, yeah. you could easily turn around and say this is true of all education. Well, you know, it turns out that in schools, the, uh, the education of the pupils is much more down to their personal efforts than it is down to the artistry of the teachers. But you still you get these teachers that have an ability they have, they have the communication artistry, a certain way of showing up, a certain way of coaching that engagement yeah. from the students. So I, I think... That's a, that's a great comeback, because I, I did not tell you that I was going to be using that or setting that up. That's very sharp, James. I'm impressed. Anybody listening needs to be impressed by that. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's just the way I roll, Adam. <laughs> um, you, you know, because... I. I presented well. I presented this um, um, not last year, the year before. I presented some stuff on evidence-based um, um, a, a series of lectures that I did, and one of them was a, a change phenomena. Mm. And um, and Freddie Jackwin um, said to me, "Well, you know, if 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 we look at standardisation of scripts, um, for example, which are used in in a lot of the research, we, we you need to have standardisation of scripts in research so that there's not differences between subjects and you can wholly isolate certain facets of it." And Freddie said, "Well, you know, if if everything ends up being standardised, then what's the difference, you know, and and what need is there for hypnotherapists?" Mm. Um, and and you know, I I, I do get that. I, I'm I'm certainly not suggesting that everything we do is just standardised across the board, because you know, some people could potentially offer up, um, and uh, I think that would therefore be overlooking all of those collaborative facets um, that are important, you know, for, for me as a therapist, for example, you know, when you have a good working alliance with that client, sometimes regardless of what you what you offer therapeutically, they will derive some benefit because of mm. that, the trust and the belief that they've invested um, and, and, and the working alliance that's been fostered. Mm. And so, you know, I, I, and I think there's a, there's a, there's an, a level of artistry within, within that, within, you know, how you are and who you are as a person. Mm. I don't want to suggest that we can just be, we can just be robots that are just churning out standardized processes. Um, I think understanding, some of the standardized processes um, and being able at the same time to, to communicate effectively. Although, uh, you, you know, I, I certainly don't think that I myself um, communicate artistically, but I definitely can be creative. Mm. Um, um, and, uh, and for that reason, I think, 
um, w one of the other sort of bugbears of mine then th then occurs because a lot of people within the field of hypnosis, for example, tend to suggest that you know to be really creative, we must be able to use you know quadruple bind, confusional adverb displacement language patterns, um, um, or, or, or whatever it may be. Um, um, and and have this kind of fluency with it, and and that's how the artistry how the artistry goes, um, um, which can be a bit defeating for some people that just don't necessarily feel inherently or naturally artistic in that way, or don't find it natural. I think you can still be creative and still be a really effective user yeah. of hypnosis without that kind of degree of of so-called artistry. I I quite agree and I think that's prescriptive artistry and I think it's I mean it's a bit like me turning around saying well if you're a true artist you need to be able to uh, paint in the impressionist style like me yeah right you know whereas yeah you know you're just a cartoonist so yeah you know you're nothing or whatever yeah. you know and, and people bring their own uniqueness to it I've just spent the weekend with some really interesting people including a guy called Steve Hardison yeah um, and Steve Hardison is a, is a coach. He's a very successful coach. He coaches some pretty big-name people and stuff. Yeah. And Steve's got, so far as I can tell, he doesn't, he's just not interested in technique or anything at all. I mean, he is the, the embodiment of just showing up and living by his values and doing his very best for somebody. And it works. And in a sense, he is the ultimate artist because yeah. he is so personal in his expression of what he does, and yet he knows nothing about all sorts of triple bind theories, or, or you know, or whatever. He, he's got no. He doesn't come from that background. He doesn't come from a, an NLP or hypnosis background. He doesn't come from a process orientated background. Now, there's just no way. I, I've no doubt this guy changes people's lives all over the place. He was an impactful guy. I was moved by this guy. This guy's presence and speaking changed me in a very yeah. unstudied and raw way. Yeah. Right. And, and I think this is one of the things, you know, about, I, I love, I think evidence-based practice is a useful thing to a point. I think certainly the research is a useful thing uh, because no one can be this guy. Like this guy was saying himself, you cannot be me. I cannot be you. You know, you've got to be yeah. you. Everybody's got to do it your way. Um, and I think that that is more that is more the kind of embodiment of artistry. And then you get this problem. It's it's the yin and the yang. I always remember this guy I taught Tai Chi to many years ago. Now I taught Tai Chi as a martial art. It works in a certain way. If you don't do it, it doesn't work anymore. You can't just do whatever you want. So I would be doing stuff with this guy, and he'd think that he could just express himself by spinning round and twirling around and doing all this crazy stuff. And in the end, I had yeah. to just start hitting him in the back of the head every time I did it. <laughs> because it was the only way to show him that his misguided idea that, yeah, man, I can just express myself any way I like, had a disconnect from functionality. Yeah. Now, yeah. I think that when we... That I'm, I'm addressing this point here you mentioned about, you know, putting the Kate Bush record on or whatever. Yeah. I think a true artist isn't just somebody that poncily and flamboyantly expresses themselves and to be damned with, with reality. You see, I think of... I think of a great tennis player as an artist. You see, that to me is artistry, great tennis playing. And you don't just get to kind of like, well, I'm going to hold the racket between my knees because I'm expressing myself. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. Um, you know, there are certain ways that are optimal 
to do what you do. And it's finding those ways in a very human, organic kind of, in that kind of trial and error, exploration, learning, all of this kind of thing, yeah. which we've been doing millennia, way before the advent of science, you see. This is the thing. I... So I think I was saying, you know, there's, there's a certain way, there's a certain way that human beings have of developing skills and understandings in the world, which we've been doing for a very, very long time, way beyond, way before science was there. You know, people yeah. would be learning to fight with swords. For me, that's artistry, the artistry of using the sword. Um, or, you know, there's artistry in so many areas, artistry in, in, in tool making or pot making. And you get someone who maybe wants to be a piano player and they start to learn to play the piano it's it, it's their their engagement, their quest, their exploration that brings them out as being the best piano player they can be. Ultimately, rather than following some sort of abstracted, evidence-based guidelines for playing the piano. Now yeah. that said, that said, living in the world in which we live, the modern era, the 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 scientific era. If I'm a tennis player, I want to look to myself um, to to develop myself in the art of tennis playing. But there's going to be much that comes from the world of science that's going to be useful to me. You know, stuff from maybe sports medicine or whatever um, that I can bring in and help to inform me and help me keep, keep my, you know, sharpen my artistry to the point where it, it, it really makes a difference. Yet at the same time, it's that, that, that freedom to be able to kind of go beyond that and not be held back by that as well. And I think this is the thing about, I think evidence-based practice is great. You know, I, I, I'm a big fan of James Pennebaker had a big uh, impact on me, particularly his research that he did yeah. uh, around trauma writing. Um, mm. You know, that really informed me, but then uh, seeing myself as a more, more of an artist, and I've, as I've already said, I don't pretend to be the most creative guy, but to me being an artist is just being dedicated to being the very best you can be at what you do. Yeah. Um, you know, so I took those ideas and I, and, and I had other ideas and I thought, well, how can this stuff that's coming out of Pennebaker's research fit with this that I'm doing over here? Actually, this could really upgrade this. It sort of semi-complements it. And so if I adjust this and fit this in, how's this working with my clients now? And of yeah. course, this is where following up is a, a really important thing. So my, my last thing about if people didn't engage their artistic side and just stay with an evidence-based protocols, how would the field really progress? Because, sure. because what, what science is testing are the crazy ideas that some creative has come up with. Sure, sure. Do you see what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, what, what, one of the things, I mean, it, it sounds to me like, you know, you're, I mean, I, and you and I have discussed this before. Um, um, you know, I, I'd say that both you and I were, were critical thinkers. Um, you know, we, 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 we think it is important to have critical thinking skills. Um, um, and I think, I think that's, you know, what, very often when I present such a thing, or if ever I talk about being what I would consider to be healthily sceptic, again, people think, you know, he's being some ultra science fascist. Um, and, and it's, it's, you know, that, that's not wholly my end. Um, um, I just think that actually you need to be quite creative to have critical thinking skills. Mm. Um, and I also think that 
um, a lot of, and certainly in my experience, a lot of hypnotherapists get taught in a fairly um, dogmatic fashion. And, mm. and, and frontline hypnotherapists in particular become entrenched in that dogma. You know, I was taught this way been, or, or I've been using this, this process for 30 years and that proves that it's right kind mm. of thing without actually examining critically what they're doing and, and applying some rationale. But, but, you know, the, the scientific side of things um, um, strikes me as being, um, as being responsible. And that is, you know, and it's not about being right either, you know. Um, it's not like saying, well, this is scientifically proven, so therefore it's correct. Mm. What, what it's saying is, you know, as far as we know, this enables us to make the best possible predictions, but will yield if this is superseded by by, by, by by other knowledge or other contributions and so on. So I think, you know, with regards to, you know, the, the, the scientific side of things, I think, you know, being able to identify, construct and evaluate arguments, for example, mm. um, and being a critical thinker is, 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 is not wholly without artistry you know being able yeah, to yeah. Um, solve problems systematically being able to identify relevance and importance of ideas these are kind of part of a scientific mindset um and which i also think you need to be you need to be quite creative to, to be that open and and not be entrenched in dogma mm. um and, and i think you know for anybody that's involved themselves in these fields if you go and have a look and one of my one of the the raison d'etre for for this or one of them for this um for this entire podcast was that i wanted um to encourage debate discussion and and so on in a way that um it is different to the stuff that you see occur on forums, for example, where people mm. proliferate their discussions with, um, with, with logical fallacy, or you know, and, and, and some of the things I've said to some of our other, um, some of our other guests on here is that, you know, um, um, let, let's discuss, let's discuss the subject matter as opposed to individuals and and so on mm. and 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 i think being a critical thinker and having a healthy skepticism which is also a very creative thing to do in my opinion it embodies that um, yes. um embodies that notion um you know i i i i also think that a lot of people talk about artistry as as kind of coming from the gut whereas evidence-based rationale tend to be thinkers um, and so a lot of people say, well, you know, rather than, than you know, a, applying intelligent reasoning that you value so much, Adam, um, I'd, I'd prefer to trust my gut feelings. Mm. And, and I don't always think that's the most accurate thing to do or, or, or that it makes sense to trust our gut feeling too much all the time and treat it like it's a benevolent force for, yeah, I agree with you for something. Partially. Um, 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 that in fact, you know, if we if we consider that and have a good, you know, I'm not suggesting that we ignore intuition and ignore instincts, but that we combine it with intelligent reasoning, and perhaps who knows, our intuition or our instincts could get better. Yeah, I, I greatly believe that. I mean, you know, many people 
I know, believe, have a model of intuition. I'm quite a fan of intuitive thinking. Yeah. But I'm also, I also have a model of it which disappoints some people who are fans of intuitive thinking, um, who believe that somehow intuition is uh, a thing that is somehow a pure, unadulterated source of truth. Yeah. Um, or it's some connection to the to the God mind or, or something or other. You yeah. Know? Um, whereas for me, intuition is just a different way of thinking. It's a more integrative way of thinking rather than the kind of more linear, logical, constructive way of thinking. Um, have you ever read Malcolm Gladwell's book, book, Blink? I have indeed, yes. So he tells the story of the, uh, of the I, I said years ago that I read this, he tells the story of the art uh, historian who had 30 years of experience who, who spots a fake straight away in, a, in an yeah. old Greek statue and just says it's a fake and they say well it can't be we've run all these tests and he says it's a fake how do you know well I don't know at the moment I just know it's a fake and then later on he could put his finger on it not because but but this this intuition is coming from 30 years in his field you know handling yeah. these things looking at the real thing looking at fakes you know and it's exactly that when a tennis player is out on on the uh, you know, on the on the court, they have to be playing from that place of flow and intuition. Yeah, it's necessary for such a fast-paced game. But that doesn't mean that that comes from some kind of weird, uh, quasi-spiritual place. It's just coming from their understandings of their game. Yeah, you know, their deeply held understandings. And I think as practitioners. This is the thing that I encourage people to do, is develop an understanding that serves them in being a highly effective practitioner. And not being snobby about any means, not just thinking you can come into it in the raw and go, well, yeah, I just trust my instincts. Yeah. Um, because you haven't put the understandings in place. You don't have the well-crafted base of understandings for those instincts. You know, that's where they come from, so far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a great believer, yeah, but we, we, to be an artist, isn't to be ignorant of art and the art that you do, you see. And I, I think many people who consider themselves artists and, oh, yeah, I can just express myself and this, that and the other, they're actually just being ignorant of the art and they've got some warped view of it. Whereas a true artist is someone who has very deep, profound understandings that they've honed over their time and experience as, as to the, you know, as to how, you know, as to the nature of their game, you know, pre-verbal subverbal, sublinguistic understandings. Now, this is a thing that in many ways, for the beginner, I suspect, could be depressing. Yeah. Right? Because, you, because you can't walk into a field as, as a highly accomplished artist. There is yeah. a path to walk. And I think this, this area at the front end, you see where we are coming in with prescriptive, like this is the technique, this is you know, I know, you know, the evidence-based practice. I think that's a great place to be coming in from yeah but I think if somebody is just switched off to that uh, switched on only to that and they go well this is they're not doing any of their own thinking they just go well you know the the evidence-based stuff says this is the thing to do so I don't have to do anything I don't have to develop my own understandings I think that's a sad loss if people go to that place if they're not doing their own thinking if they're just taking the word of some piece of research which may have incredible value in it but if it's if they're using that as a substitute for their own thinking and their own engagement you know I'm a great believer in critical thinking I'm a great believer in using your faculties to enhance your understanding of things I, I think abdicating that there's a risk sometimes on the flip side of abdicating go well this this works so just as you could have some woo-woo thing coming in 
and people just buy into it without engaging yeah. in critical thinking. Equally, they could say, well, the scientists have done the thinking for me, so I don't have to engage my, my, my own critical thinking around this. Sure. Um, so I think, you know, I, I agree with you 100%. Critical thinking is, is a valuable, valuable tool. And, I, and when I spoke at Change Phenomena on this, the last time I spoke at Change Phenomena, um, they won't have me back because I spoke on this topic, which wasn't what I'd agreed to speak on. <laughs> I, was re I was responding to Irving Kirsch, who'd been on and really bummed the room out first. Yeah. Uh, first off, everyone was kind of all really down. And my response to Irving Kirsch was really that I encourage each person, or my, my response to the room is I encourage each of you to switch up your own... Um, switch up your own capacity to look deeply and evaluate, to start following up with your own clients, to start experimenting with things. If you do something intuitively, well, you want to start to get a sense of how it works, because it might be something you might want to add to your toolkit, but you're not just going to, you need some way of evaluating what you're doing. You know, so I'm a, I'm a great believer that people step up and they become their own explorers and their own evaluators, they become switched on in their thinking and they draw from ideas of other people, but they never, this is my my stance on it currently is they never take it on face value regardless of where it comes from yeah um yeah switch on your own thinking and your own evaluation and get get weighed in there you know i think um I, I, you know people that are listening to this I, I i'd go back and have a good re-listen to uh, um the points that james has made there because there's some there's some real value in that um, um we, we are out of time sadly um, um, it's, uh, you know, uh, 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 as, uh, as I've said before, I could absolutely just continue uh, chatting and chatting to James. And I hope that I'll manage to persuade you to, to come back and speak to me um, on this podcast once again. Um, thank you ever so much for being here today, James. Um, it's been a real pleasure um, chatting with you and hearing about you. And um, I hope we get to have you come back at, at a future point as well. Thank you, Adam. I've really enjoyed it and I would love to come back in the future. So thank you very much. And once again, for anybody listening, uh, hypnosiswithouttrance.com. There is a link uh, underneath this episode. Do go and check out uh, James's work. Um, and loads and loads to learn from in there. Lots of insight there in today's discussion. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed that. On to today's hypnosis fact of the week. Now, past and present students of my school, as well as people that uh, read my books or follow my blog, for example, will know of my love and my admiration for Emile Coué. His two classic books were entitled My Method and Self-Mastery Through Auto-Suggestion. Um, although he did not refer to his work as self-hypnosis, many believe his work has contributed greatly to the foundations of what is now a glorious field of self-hypnosis, I say in my highly biased perspective. Uh, Emil Curry actually rejected uh, the field of heterohypnosis, um, 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 and, and, and perhaps that was the reason why he didn't really refer to his work as self-hypnosis. Some might suggest, however, um, because the, the discussion of Emil Curry and his work is something for another time and another day, uh, another place, some might suggest that another author actually wrote more and better material about Coué's work. Who that person is, well that is our fact of the week. Because yes, indeed, the most noted biographer, 
follower and author, as far as Kue's work was concerned, was a man called Charles Baudouin, who wrote Suggestion and Autosuggestion in 1920, and also The Power Within Us, as well as some other books and, and in noted journals as well. So while Kue is possibly most widely known for his work uh, in relation to autosuggestion, Baudouin's opinion was that the law of reversed effect, or what we might call nowadays the effort error, or trying too hard, was actually one of the most important aspects of Kue's approach. So there you have it, Charles Baudouin, an unsung hero of autosuggestion, as some might say. I mean, even within my own work, I've written about um, one of the biggest impediments as far as affecting uh, a change with self-hypnosis is concerned, is that, 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 that effort error, as classic Kueism would say. If you have any factoids uh, from the field of hypnosis that you'd like to share, uh, send it in to me. It may well feature here. There may even be prizes for good ones. Woohoo! In our next edition, next week, I'll be welcoming the man who trained Darren Brown in stage hypnosis, Martin S. Taylor. And I'll be answering some of the many questions I've received in recent weeks since this podcast began. And I've got many more exciting guests here in future weeks. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating, and above all, remaining friends. And just to repeat, all the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions, so do please message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website, and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anybody else and really help us reach the hypnosis community. Thanks again, go to James Tripp. My thanks to you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.